Singe, Singe, Zinga. You're listening to Zinga Network at zinganetwork.com. Hi, this is Susanna Gabrielli. And this is Cleo Constantine. And welcome to season two of Business or Pleasure. We hope you missed us. Um, we have been very busy traveling the Southern Hemisphere and Asia over the winter. Um, if you're just tuning in for the first time, we are two escorts in love who like to talk about issues that affect us and just kind of give you a glimpse into our lives. And we have lots of new topics that we're excited to share with you. Uh, we were working under many different legal models while we were on uh, while we were on tour. Uh, I worked under decriminalization in New Zealand and New South Wales, and uh, we worked we both worked under a legal system in Victoria. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important um, for us to say that. We advocate for the decriminalization of sex work. However, uh, I believe that decriminalization is the first step and it's not the final destination for sex worker rights. And we say this because uh, decriminalization is kind of the utopic vision that most sex workers worldwide have of um, what we want the industry to look like. And while it's true, we do want decriminalization um, deeply. Um, We're kind of, I would say most workers kind of are in agreement on this. However, the topic of this episode is that while we want it, it is the first step and actually uh, not the final step. So it's important to talk about what decriminalization is because decriminalization is often conflated with legalization and these terms are used interchangeably. So uh, to speak about it, I need to speak about what legalization is in relation to decriminalization. So legalization means state regulation of the sex industry. Uh, but if you are in accordance with the guidelines, technically buying and selling of sex is legal. However, it is not difficult to fall outside of these guidelines. Uh, The second uh, model that is most common is the Nordic model. In essence, this means that selling sexual services is legal, but purchasing sex is criminalized. That means that the purchases of sex can and are arrested and, you know, do end up with criminal records for um, purchasing sexual services. And it is based on a feminist principle that consent cannot be bought and that the paying of sex is um, a tool of coercion, in in essence making the purchasing of sex a form of rape. So to kind of summarize, sex work, how it functions in the law, it's not as simple as, you know, sex work being legal or illegal. I think a lot of people have this idea that in some places in the world, it's legal to, you know, purchase uh, sexual services. And in other places, it's illegal. But actually, there are like a number of models, um, which is what Cleo just described, which are relevant to sex workers' lives. And that's what we're going to get into. So, for example, there are like here in Germany, I would say most people are under the impression that sex work is legal. So, you know, we're all good. You can hire an escort, you can go to a strip club, like no consequences. 
Um, however, actually, the situation in Germany changed in 2017 with the introduction of a new law that made it mandatory for sex workers to um, identify themselves on an official list. They have to register themselves at a local governing body. Yeah, at a at an AMT, um, register themselves, carry around an identification card, and participate in mandatory um, sex trafficking seminars to essentially make sure that they are aware of their way out of the industry if they wanted to exit. Um, and while, you know, we can understand why uh, this law could be interpreted as, you know, protecting sex workers from sex trafficking by giving them the tools um, to kind of understand their situation. What we've seen is this law be highly problematic and a lot of sex workers are against it because, you know, simply because most sex workers don't want to identify themselves on an official governmental list. And why should they have to when stigma, you know, has not, we, we have not achieved a moment in society where there is no stigma against sex workers. And there are many privacy concerns as well um, as many of our, you know, colleagues have had the experience of going to be registered there is no privacy even when you are in this office to to go to a, a counter and identify yourself as a sex worker. There is no privacy given to you. It, your, your name and your address can be stated loudly in an office full of other people who are in the office for other um, official reasons. Mm. Um, it's just very badly handled and uh, very little consideration was put forward for privacy issues, the fact that many sex workers wouldn't want to have a piece of paper with their legal name and their working name printed together, fears of, of clients uh, finding the, the, you know, our information just by going through our things, all sorts of things like this, family members and so on. We don't necessarily want to have to carry a, uh, a prostitution pass. And I think it was you or someone very intelligent who said, you know, the last person, the last time that minorities were required to subscribe to an official governmental list was, you know, in World War II. And that's very scary. Absolutely. The governments do not have a history of treating sex workers well. So why should we trust the government now is a big question Absolutely. that we're, a lot of sex workers have. We're moving towards eras of, of greater surveillance and um you know, why would we want to to volunteer our information to the government? Mm. So this is a situation that's close to our hearts in Germany because it's made essentially everyone who does not register on this official list illegal again. And that is a big problem of legalization when, you know, you don't fit the mold of what's being asked of you, you are rendered criminalized, essentially. There are many valid reasons why a sex worker would not want to register in Germany, nor would they in some cases be capable of doing so. But mm. failure to have the prostitute passport is that you cannot work in a brothel or in a studio. And, you know, this working visa also excludes migrant workers. And, you know, as we talked about in last season, there is a great deal of workers who do sex work because it is their only option. They're called survival sex workers. You know, um, sex work has always been a way for marginalized people to gain access to capital quickly, you know, especially when they are devoid of other options. Um, migrant workers who may not be able to work in Germany for other reasons are automatically, you know, criminalized 
because they don't have a working visa if they're going to participate in sex work. So, And it's very unlikely that you would be granted a valid visa to work as a sex worker. This isn't a visa that is that is available to people. Mm. It's yeah. There is discrimination about people working in this industry. And when you are dealing with bureaucrats and applying for a visa as a sex worker, I think this would be extremely unlikely to be granted. So mm. unless you are a citizen... Um, it's very difficult to to register um, as a sex worker in Germany. So hopefully you can see why um, this the creation of this new law, which is essentially a regulation under the legalization model, is problematic for sex workers, hugely problematic. Um, another example somewhere I worked recently, we both worked recently, is uh, Victoria and Melbourne specifically. And in Melbourne, sex work is legal in contrast to New South Wales, another part of Australia, where it is decriminalized. And the main difference, I think, that as a sex worker you um, experience is the fact that in-calls in Melbourne are illegal. Out-calls are legal. So you can go, if somebody uh, calls you and they want you to meet them at their hotel, you can go there, um, that's legal. However, if somebody wants to make a booking with you and they would like you to provide the location, you are not uh, legally allowed to book a hotel and host a client. So for whatever reason, the government decided that this was going to keep sex workers safe. However, logically, um, it actually is much less safe um, for sex workers to constantly be going to the site of the client rather than hosting them in a place where they feel safe or have kind of their own security set up. So this is very bizarre and inconvenient. And often sex workers, you know, are forced to hire a in-call anyway because they need the work. Uh, and that means that they're, what they're doing is illegal, even though sex work is, is legal in Victoria. Um, also, two workers operating in the same environment is considered a brothel. So two workers doing a double is illegal um, in Melbourne. Unless you're working in a brothel. Unless you're working in a brothel. Just all of these annoying little laws that make not only our lives difficult, but actually put us in danger and, you know, create like a fear environment of of getting caught by the police doing something that's illegal. It essentially means that sex workers have to make the decision between working legally or safely. Um, mm. You know, another example is in Queensland as well in Australia. Uh, if you are an independent worker, again, working together in the same building as another sex worker, even if it's in a hotel and there happen to be two sex workers working not together, uh, this is criminalized. Um, messaging another sex worker uh, with your current location or when a client arrives and leaves, so essentially your safe call person, this is illegal. Uh, employing a receptionist or someone to answer your phones, illegal. Uh, using a driver, unless it is your uh, private driver, if this driver uh, is a driver for other sex workers, this is illegal. Uh, I think this is um, very significant that describing what services are offered and what services are not offered, this is illegal. So how are you supposed to set expectations and boundaries before the client has showed up in person 
if you're not able to describe this over text or over the phone, mm. it's it's dangerous. And I would, you know, most clients want to discuss, you know, sexual services beforehand, especially if they're looking for something in particular. So it's frustrating because you, as a worker, will get asked by clients who are either unaware or don't care about, you know, the specific law. And then you're forced to either lose the client or to act illegally and discuss you know, sexual services in advance. And I know a lot of workers who don't do it, you know, who think immediately that somebody who's going to ask them about sexual services is the police trying to, you know, operate a sting or something. However, you know, lots of sex workers who are survival sex workers or marginalized don't have the option to turn down work when it comes up. And that makes them, they're operating in an unsafe environment that may as well be criminalized. Much more vulnerable. Mm. And I think it's really important that, Language is really precise around legal models with sex work because often the terms legal, decriminalized, and Nordic are used interchangeably. So, for example, Kamala Harris, who was one of the leaders in pushing for Sesta Foster, which um, if you'd like to go back, we talk about that in season one. Uh, She said on the day that it passed... Victims of sex trafficking should be protected and have the ability to seek justice. That's why from my earliest days as a prosecutor, I've led for the fight against Backpage and other sex trafficking platforms. So she was very much against Backpage and other advertising platforms that meant that street-based sex workers were able to work a lot more safely online. And she is now saying that she advocates for the decriminalization of sex work. Now, when she said in an interview, she said, back when I was a DA, I was advocating that we have to stop arresting these prostitutes and instead go after the Johns and the pimps because we were criminalizing the women, but not the men associated with it who were making money off it and profiting off it. So what Kamala Harris is describing here is the Nordic model. She is advocating for clients to be criminalized and not women. However, in the media, it is constantly being touted that Kamala Harris is in favor of decriminalization of sex work. Now, it's very problematic for this term to be used interchangeably because we need to be precise with the public in what we want in terms of safety and working models what our needs are. Um, we, I don't think there are any sex workers who are in favor of the Nordic model. The Nordic model makes it harder for sex workers to see safe clients because if clients are afraid of being criminalized, then who are the ones that are going to pursue sexual services? Ones who have less regard for um, their safety or uh, of doing something that's illegal. So it essentially makes it more dangerous for sex workers. And also the supply of clients uh, can also be cut drastically. I think that for people who work outside the sex industry, what I like to to talk about in terms of the Nordic model is to imagine if you were trying to to like take sex out of it. Imagine you were trying to sell a house, but the selling of the house is legal, but the buying of it is illegal. 
Imagine what boundaries and barriers would be in place that would make it so much more difficult for you to sell your house. Like you wouldn't be able to use a real estate agent. You would have to be privately, secretly meeting with people. You would be afraid of putting the money in for the sale of the house into your bank account. Um, there are many reasons why the Nordic model overwhelmingly uh, punishes sex workers because they are already marginalized people, especially for uh, street-based sex workers. Um, if clients are afraid of being criminalized when they approach a sex worker, they will be saying, get in the car quickly. I don't want to be seen, you know, and this has led to huge increases in violence against sex workers, especially street-based sex workers who have to meet with clients on the outskirts of the city in places that are dimly lit, dangerous, and places where clients uh, can easily beat them up, rob them, rape them, murder them. So the alternative to the Nordic model, the alternative to criminalization, which sex workers have been talking about for ages, for years, is decriminalization. And what is decriminalization? It's, you know, the concept, the idea that no part of the sex industry is criminalized, from street work to brothels to independent uh, workers. However, it is subject to workplace guidelines. Um, and now decriminalization is the popular choice among sex workers worldwide for obvious reasons. Um, definitely, I would say working in North America, it's almost this utopic uh, idea that sex workers can get behind and rally behind. And it's understandable. You know, I've worked in North America and to, you know, be constantly afraid of the police, to be, you know, caught by the IRA or, you know, it's like, it, it's terrible to live in fear. And, you know, I've actually read many accounts of trans street workers who say that their biggest enemy is the police, actually, that they fear not so much johns and clients, but actually they fear the police. So the idea that, you know, no aspect of the sex industry being criminalized is extremely attractive. And, I would say, you know, for myself and I think Cleo as well, like we definitely want to see decriminalization in our lifetime. We're fighting for it all the time. Mm -hmm. So the main places in the world, there are two places in the world where sex work is decriminalized. It's in the entire country of New Zealand and New South Wales in Australia. And uh, I started in the sex industry in New Zealand. That's where I had my, you know, formative experiences in the sex industry. I also um, come from New South Wales myself, and uh, so I had lived most of my life in two places where sex work was completely decriminalized, and I actually had no, I was very naive, I, I barely even knew that there were places where sex work was illegal. I was aware that, say, in America, but I really did not know um, the differentiation between legal and decriminalized, and I took it for granted, of course, that of course the police would be on my side. Of course, um, I shouldn't be subject to surveillance or um, interference in my work, completely punitive and arbitrary regulations that did not have my safety in mind. And um, But I think that it's important to note that technically uh, there is nowhere where sex work is truly, truly, truly decriminalized. For example, there are many strange uh, brothel laws in New South Wales um, to do with zoning. And um, condom usage is mandatory in New Zealand. That means that condom usage is mandatory. 
for all forms of sex, including oral sex. And uh, clients and workers are both criminalized for asking for or offering these services. To not use a condom. Exactly. So if you advertise that you offer blowjobs without a condom, you are subject to penalties. Obviously, we're starting off this season with quite a theory-heavy episode, and um, part of the reason we're doing this is because we both were touring uh, this winter in the Southern Hemisphere and both operating in places where sex work is decriminalized. And this was obviously an attractive choice for us because, you know, as much as possible, we want to operate within the law because, you know, we don't want to experience oppression or criminalization. Um, But I think that experiencing what decriminalization was in our experience or how it operated was quite shocking in some ways and revealing of what the situation is actually like and kind of what happens in real time under a decrim model when uh, there is still stigma and issues that need to be addressed in society before we can have a truly decrim model of sex work. Exactly. Like there are many things in place in terms of stigma that are barriers uh, that prevent sex workers from accessing services and for exercising their rights. Mm. So when we were touring, it was it was interesting to work in a city where you're not committing a crime to be working in any way. Um, however, hotels can still kick you out. Airbnbs can still kick you out and they can ban you forever on the platform. Mm. So, you know, when we were in Sydney, um, you know, we were warm. We were <laughs> It's we a, were very, the weather was gorgeous. We were having a great we time. We were united. To be we hadn't seen each other in a long time. Yeah. Um, and we met in Sydney. And, you know, working in Sydney was, at least for me, you know, very different than anywhere else I've really worked. I would say the, um, the game, the hustle in Australia, maybe partially because of uh, Decrim, is very high. There's a lot of competition, there's a lot of workers. Um, there's a lot of um, money that is funneled into advertising platforms. Um, it's very expensive to advertise, I would say, in Australia, definitely in Sydney and in Melbourne. Um, and it's expensive to rent an in-call, to rent a hotel, to basically rent anything where you are in the city. Um, you're paying a lot. So I mean, Backpage was gone back again. Backpage is gone. RIP. And even when Backpage is around, I think it was it was ten dollars a bump in to bump your ad to the top. To bump your ad in Sydney versus in Berlin, where it was two euros. Was it? Yes. And, and there also, were only like five to ten people. In, exactly. Yeah. So you could bump for two euros and be visible for five days. Whereas in Sydney, because there's so many workers, you would you know throw ten ten bucks into the ether. Ether? Ether. <laughs> Ether. <laughs> and within five minutes, your ad would be completely lost, like 10 pages uh, behind all of the new escorts who bumped their ads. So mm. it's it's much more competition. It's like you really need to be ready to hustle when you're in these places. And um, no offense, Sydney, but you really offer a very unique and aggressive uh, breed of time waster. Deeply. I don't think I've ever had my time wasted quite so deeply as in Sydney. It's, it's kind of remarkable, actually. 
Yeah, and I think um, while I was on this tour, I thought to myself, hey, you know, I think it would be, because I, I had not worked in a brothel since I first, first started in the industry two years ago. And I just thought like, man, like these time wasters are really annoying me. Like maybe, you know, what would be nice would be if I would, um, got rid of all of my admin work and uh, had someone handle that for me and uh, work in a brothel. And I, you know, uh, brothels are completely... Uh, legal to work in. It's a brothels are very popular in Sydney, and I wanted to see what it would be like to work in a brothel in Sydney. Also, like in Australia, there is such a distinct brothel culture that doesn't really exist in anywhere that I've ever lived. I think, like you know, most it's just important to note, like most sex workers actually start off working in a brothel mm. compared to like North America, where I think. A lot of workers would have certain associations about brothel workers. They wouldn't consider it an option. They would be nervous. In Australia, there is such a brothel culture. They're kind of similar to strip clubs almost. Yeah. Um, so it, it really, I would say there is still stigma, but there isn't the same level of stigma, I think, for new workers. I think working in a brothel presents itself as like a safe and viable way to enter the industry. There's definitely a mentality in Australia that working in a brothel is safer than working independently via um, online platforms. Um, I think that this uh, sentiment is definitely echoed within the industry and by uh, brothel um, people who have a stake in the brothel uh, system. Um, you know, the, the whole idea is that there are cameras, there are panic buttons in the room and there is security and that there are other people around and that so therefore it is safer to work in a brothel. Mm. And I'm always down for a weird time. So I was like, let's go. Same. I <laughs> kind of was like, let's get some more material for season two. Yeah. Let's work in a brothel and see what it's like. Yeah. And I really was not ready for what happened. <laughs> mm. So in a brothel, you're technically an independent contractor. You're not an employee. So that means that you're not paid an hourly wage. Uh, it, it has various implications in terms of um, workplace health and safety insurance and so on and um, paid leave if you were to have a an accident or if you're sick or if you want to go on a holiday. You do not have any of these entitlements as an independent contractor, which is what you are when you work in a brothel and not an employee. Not only that, but you often uh, pay a brothel a shift fee. Maybe not often. Sometimes we did pay a brothel a shift fee, which covers laundry and snacks while you're working. Which is not covered by the 40% fee that you pay for each booking. So basically you give away almost half of your earnings. Every booking that you do secure in a brothel, you're already giving away almost half of what you earn to the brothel managers. Mm. Um, you're still basically treated like an employee. Like you cannot just come and go as you like. Um, you know, you have like minimum hours that you can be, that you're to be on site. And there was just this really, uh, intense feeling of control by managers, which I was really not used to. I mm. haven't worked a, um, I haven't had a manager for over two years. Yeah, I think both of us struggled with that a lot. Like there really is the feeling that even though you are not an employee, that you need to kind of keep your head down, follow the rules. Otherwise, you know, you're going to be 
punished by being fired or you or know. the often brothels charge uh fines for infractions um for various things such as calling in sick you can be fined for that mm. such as leaving dirty dishes in the sink you can be fined for that and the fines are completely arbitrary and decided by the establishment mm. So we started working at one of the more popular brothels in Sydney. Um, probably called, the most famous. Perhaps the most famous, called Tiffany's. Um, there is a dress code. We had to wear tights and cocktail dresses, which was also kind of silly. We were charged a fee if we didn't have tights. It was uh, $20. $20, which is crazy. Mm. Um, and we really did feel kind of like girls in a boarding school. Like it was a, it was a weird experience. I really enjoyed, I think both of us enjoyed talking with the other workers. Yes. Like we immediately had this feeling of like camaraderie, which was really nice. And like, I remember when I used to be a dancer, really appreciating just being around other workers, kind of like hanging out. Like that really like nourishes you, especially when you're in like a strange city and mm. um, yeah, you're isolated. So that was really nice. However, um, you know, being forced to comply with his dress code and just the kind of like attitudes of the managers was uh, challenging for both of us as, you know, just I think kind of. independent sex work can be very isolating. Like it's really important when you're an independent worker to make sure that you keep your social, um, your social network strong. And the beauty of working in a brothel is many reasons. The admin, like I described, but also like, as I said, the, the camaraderie, the social aspect, the feeling of support. Um, is is really quite beautiful, um, but uh, that is as highly as I will speak of this brothel slash brothels generally. Mm. Um, for example, in this brothel, uh, condoms were not included. Yeah, that was really shocking for yeah. us. The fact that we had to bring and provide our own condoms to work at Tiffany's. Which is actually uh, technically illegal according to the Brothel Act that um, in New South Wales, which is that uh, workplaces, workplaces generally in Australia must provide protective equipment to employees. And also uh, brothels under the under the Act say that they must provide protective um, uh, prophylax uh, prophylactics or whatever. So that means condoms, dams, gloves, etc., ought to be, uh, and it is the responsibility of the brothel to provide these to workers. But not at Tiffany's. We had to bring them ourselves. and Not in many places in New South Wales. I don't think I heard of a single brothel in New South Wales. I, I'm sure they maybe exist. But. Yeah. I have asked many workers about this. It seems that in Sydney it's quite rare unless you go to some of the suburban brothels that are not in the city centre. Mm -hmm. Some of these suburban brothels do uh, provide condoms to workers. Mm -hmm. um, however, these seem to be the exception and not the rule. And in Melbourne, for example, in the brothels in Melbourne, they definitely give you a huge party pack filled with condoms, all different sizes, lube, like they really do um, provide that under the legalization model, which is interesting. So the other requirements that we had was that we had to stay nine hours per shift, sometimes longer, um, which is longer than an employee would. We did not have... Um, like mandated breaks, like if uh, the clients were coming for introductions, uh, as a worker, you were uh, pressurized to not uh, say to managers, look, I'm taking half an hour off for my lunch break. You were pressurized to be working for the entire nine hours. Mm -hmm. And uh, as well, like all of our money, our earnings were held at the front desk in a safe. 
and uh, they were held there until we completed our shifts. There were keys for us uh, for the safe that we did not have access to. Reception had access to them. So essentially, there was just so many uh, problematic violations in this brothel. But what we kind of came to the understanding was that these places, these brothels kind of get away with it because no one is going to report them. And because sex work is treated just like any other job under decriminalization, the onus is on the worker to go to the civil court to identify themselves and to report the conditions in a brothel. However, there's many reasons why somebody wouldn't want to do this, to identify themselves, to make themselves unsafe, to they would definitely lose their job. They would not receive compensation from the government. So this is a power dynamic that makes it possible for brothels to function the way they do. And if you don't like it, you go somewhere else. You they move are on. essentially weaponizing stigma against you in order for you to feel unable to exercise your civil rights as a worker. And if you make complaints, if you cause drama, if you say, you know, to a manager, I need to have a break, there's a high likelihood that they will fire you. This is the exactly. this is the general feeling that we had. It was definitely an environment where we felt exploited as workers. It was quite shocking. It's the attitude is essentially if you don't like it, go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And um, it means that that brothels can really like churn and burn girls. And uh, Tiffany's a huge influx of workers coming yeah. in and getting fired and leaving. It's just a constant reel. And Tiffany's is a very um, busy brothel, which means that there are, you know, for every girl that's working there, there are 100 girls who would love to take their place because, you know, it is a place where you can, you know, reliably make money. So do we want to talk about your experience? <laughs> yeah, sure. So, I mean, essentially what, what was going on is just like, Incredible, egregious exploitation. As someone who has been a independent worker for two years now, um, I was just completely unused to being treated like this. I was completely unused to being told what I could and couldn't uh, do. And uh, what I experienced when I worked at Tiffany's um, would be considered pimping and trafficking in other countries. Yet, um, you know, the reality of of what we of what we experienced is you know working under decriminalization in new south wales mm -hmm. so um what happened was i was working uh it was about two o'clock in the morning at this point so i was you know already feeling a bit you know tired and um i introed with a client that i just didn't feel safe seeing he wanted to do um cocaine with me and I, I wasn't, you know, just was not interested. And um, I refused to take the booking. I informed reception once they told me that the client had chosen me. I said, no, I didn't. I didn't want to take the booking. And I was told that I did not have a choice. I had to see the client. So they told me that unless I had seen the client before and potentially had a bad experience, I would say the subtext of that is that I had been assaulted before by this client or that I knew the client, um, I was not allowed to turn down the client. Mm. And I, you know, stuck to my boundaries and said, no, I didn't want to see the client. And I was uh, humiliated in front of everyone and I was fired on the spot. And um, I was there. <laughs> 
And I was, you know, quite, I was just so stunned. I think my response was almost like muted in the moment because I just could not believe that this was happening, you know, like, you know, both of us have worked in the industry long enough that we are not going to see clients we feel unsafe seeing. That's absolutely mm. uh, like non-negotiable. And the fact that somebody was, you know, telling you specifically in this instance that you don't have the right to refuse this client was just absolutely shocking. And I was, you know, behind Cleo and I was just repeating like, you can't do this is ridiculous. Like you can't, you can't expect her to see someone she feels unsafe seeing. And the situation escalated quite quickly. Um, the manager was, uh, you know, insulting, um, insulting both of us. Um, she called us gutter people. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, she, she called us gutter people. Um, you and your gutter friend need to leave my establishment immediately. And we were just like, okay, like, fine, like... And Cleo kind of went off and I kind of continued talking to this uh, very problematic manager um, and was saying, you know, I can't believe that this this is the conditions of this brothel, you know, that and now we're getting fired because we won't see a client that, you know, is potentially unsafe. And at that moment, um, because she was so upset, she said, well, you can both leave without pay. Um, and that and I, at that moment, I was just like, OK like hold the phone like you know because we had worked all night it was like a late night we were forced to stay at this brothel for nine hour shifts so obviously five in the morning so five in the morning so we had seen clients before and just the thought that she would withhold pay from the other clients we had seen I was like this is getting this is getting bad yeah so after that um you know I kind of ran to get my things I didn't know where you were um, so I went to reception and I said, okay, you know, where is Cleo? Obviously you had a different name and they said, okay, she's outside. And I said, well, was she, was she paid? And they said, yes, of course she was. What are you talking about? I mean, I th have to say that again, because my, I, I think I'm just a very like strong person. I, I went to the back room, I got changed and I marched to reception and I said, I want to get paid now. And uh, the receptionist was like, yes, 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 of course. And I think that they were nervous that the manager that had threatened to withhold my pay would see me getting paid and they wanted to pay me very quickly. And, um, you know, I'm really glad that I was able to take my money. It was like several hundred dollars. And um, I was absolutely flabbergasted that a manager felt that they had the right to, to um steal my money um because they were petulant and um felt uh that they had like lost face in front of the other girls in the brothel that they had like lost control of me mm -hmm. that they had to make a public show of saying like yes you will see clients we demand that you see clients and if you don't we will take money off you no matter how much money and that's when i realized the power dynamic of the brothel having the keys to the safe for your earnings. And essentially I felt like I was being blackmailed to be complicit in being essentially raped by a client that I didn't want to see. I mean, as, a, as an independent um, sex worker, I refuse at least half the clients who inquire to see me. Um, I have standards and not to mention, I think in this job, it's extremely important to trust your gut. And if you feel that a client is weird or a bit off, 
you should absolutely have the right and be supported in refusing a client for any reason. Unfortunately, brothels don't really see it that way because they are not the ones who are alone in a room with a client. All they get is their 40% and they don't really care, especially because workers are very replaceable to them. Threatening to withhold pay is so deeply illegal and problematic. I just could not believe it. And I went to reception and I told them, you know, that this manager threatened to withhold pay. And even they, the other, you know, people working at this brothel were quite shocked as, you know, they know that that's deeply illegal. And as we were leaving, they suggested to me, you know, maybe you want to go to the police station across the street and make a complaint. So uh, we we did end up going to the police station and making a complaint. Um, of course we did. <laughs> yeah, of course we did. Being the uppity sex workers that we are. And uh, when I went to the police station, I was basically told that there was nothing in legislation to cover what would be considered in other jurisdictions to be exploitation, pimping and human trafficking. So holding someone's um, money, forcing them to see clients, coercing them to see clients, blackmail, etc. All of this would be classed as human trafficking in many places. Um, you know, the brothel would be seen as a pimp and the workplace would be seen as exploitative. But uh Basically, when I went to the to the police officer, he he told me that um, it's your job to see clients, and um, you know, of course, they would fire you, and if you don't like it, go somewhere else. And I was told that it was a civil matter, and that I could take them to civil court. And um, I sort of kept repeating that you know this is human trafficking, um, but I was told like no, it's not, and and to leave and. It was really obvious to me, like, that the the police officer, you know, like, yeah, like, fuck the police, ACAB, etc. But, like, it was really obvious that the, the police officer had no sensitivity training when it came to um, dealing with dynamics of, of sex work. And I think that many people living in um, criminalized um, places such as the U.S. would, like, balk at the idea of... A, a police officer having sensitivity training for, for sex workers. But I'm of the opinion that like there is no point to decriminalization if uh, stigma is alive and well and the police are n- not invested in protecting sex workers because the point of decriminalization not only is that workers are not criminalized, but just also that they are safe to go to the police to report crimes against them and to have confidence that the police are going to treat them as if um, they are uh, worthy of, uh, you know, that they are genuine victims, that they are worthy of protection and so on. And if decriminalization is to function properly, uh, sex workers need to feel that the police are on their side. And that was absolutely not my experience um, at this police station. Mm. Yeah, what we what I found funny um, about our experience in Australia is that you know brothels are commonly seen as a safe form of sex work in Australia, as opposed to independent work, um, because of the management that is you know technically there, because of the panic buttons, the cameras, etc. Um, however, this was something that was repeated by other workers in the brothel. Oh, many times. I we I had I was speaking to many workers that said you know oh wow you're independent like. How did you, oh, like one day I'll go independent. And I was like, oh my God, like you really see this as 
um, like a, a level up or like a next step. Whereas, you know, for me, I found um, working in a brothel, having to intro and sell myself to clients all the time, exhausting and definitely not my preferred mode of working. I found it incredibly taxing, like difficult. You know, you need the energy levels. You're in heels for nine hours. Like, um, I just couldn't believe the attitudes of a lot of workers who um, seem to think that working independently was more unsafe. Uh, brothel managers really like to drum into the head, uh, the heads of of workers in brothels that independent work is more dangerous. You never know who you're going to meet. Like you're meeting any stranger off um, off the internet. However, brothel work is in no way safe in my experience. How are you safe at all if you cannot turn down a client for any reason other than you know them, as in you recognize them, or they have assaulted you before? Like, in what way is this safe? You cannot turn down a client. And I don't feel that managers were in any way supportive of workers if they were feeling, um, you know, if they were to have been assaulted. I I really feel that... um, while I didn't witness this, but just by my experience with them, that they probably would be told to suck it up and get on with it. Yeah. Um, I think it is important to note, though, however, in the situation of New South Wales, at least, um, while being independent may not be more dangerous, it is much more expensive and um, inaccessible for for many workers. You know, rates to advertise are so expensive in New South Wales. Like it can be, you know, easily $50 a day for a single website, you know, and often you want to be advertising on many websites. So it's just not like a financial possibility for a lot of workers. And that makes brothels the more attractive option. However, what we've seen is that, you know, the conditions for working in a brothel under decrim are absolutely harmful to workers. And I think it's important to to go back to um, the like the issue with the police is that, you know, the advantage of decrim is that, you know, workers should be able to to approach the police. However, again, with the lack of sensitivity uh, training, um, and also the fact that, like, while it might be decriminalized, like while your job might be decriminalized, there might be other ways that what you are is criminalized. For example, sex workers are often not just sex workers. It's important to be intersectional here. Um, you know, many sex workers are uh, people of color, you know, who have trauma surrounding, you know, the police generally. They may be trans. They may be a drug user, you know. Uh, going to the police is complicated and uh, traumatic potentially for for all of these reasons. So we really kind of want to get back to this point that decriminalization is not ideal as a model right now, um, especially as we've experienced in New South Wales. Um, You know, because of the police, um, mainly because stigma is still in place in society. Like workers don't have the, you know, freedom to just go to a civil court and make a complaint against their employer. It There's much more consequences for, for a sex worker to out themselves um, mm. than it would be for somebody, you know, working in a restaurant to go make a complaint about their employer. It has, you know, potential implications for their family, for their spouse. A lot of sex workers aren't out to their families, out to society. You know, if they, if people in their neighborhood found out, it could be dangerous 
dangerous. Like these are things that lawmakers need to consider. Mm, And it means that workplace violations constantly go unchecked. Mm. And not only that, like egregious acts of of exploitation, criminal acts of exploitation go unchecked. Mm, We felt really compelled to make this episode because I guess the dominant narrative that we experience online and through, you know, via sex workers that we know is that we're constantly pushing for decriminalization. And that is a completely valid goal. We do want that. Sex workers want decriminalization. However, once again, we think that decriminalization is the first step to like changing policy around sex work. And actually that there should potentially be conditions that um, are specifically related to sex work that take into consideration the special position that sex workers are in. And there's many other jobs, like many um, jobs that have special conditions, such as boxers, for example. What was the example that well, for example, I think the public would love for boxers to be to be fighting, you know, barehanded. Mm. However, they are mandated to wear gloves for their own protection. Mm-hmm. And this is an industry-specific regulation. And, um, you know, like builders, for example, people who work in construction, they have industry-specific regulations in terms of... Uh, you know, safety and so on. And, you know, uh, I, I think that we're not advocating for legalization, but we are talking about sex worker led guidelines with our needs in mind. Mm, sex workers need to be involved in, in lawmaking. lawmaking around sex work because we are the only ones that are tuned into our specific needs based on experiences we have in the industry. You know, for example, to, to take the example of Melbourne, sex workers are 100% not safer not being allowed to do in-calls. If sex workers were involved in this kind of legislation, it would not be that way because sex workers know that it's like massively inconvenient and often makes you make the choice to be, you know, work illegally by not taking in-calls. Sex workers need to survive. I mean, I don't feel that the in-call rule in Victoria is put in place to keep sex workers safe. I feel like with many regulations that are put in around the sex industry, it is to keep sex workers and the general population separate so that the middle classes are not exposed to our filth, basically. You know, I think like a lot of people are worried about having a brothel in their apartment building or, you know, an unofficial brothel where men are coming and going and there's all these, you know, horrible, disgusting women, bad influence on children, spreading of diseases and all sorts of things. The idea is to put workers, like say like, oh, it's okay to have a few stray workers coming to a hotel for an out call. However, we don't like the idea of workers and clients coming and going, you know, in suburbia and, you know, brothels. Well, we can keep them separate and um, it's a designated area where we must like tolerate this activity. You know, I think most of these regulations never, ever even purported to have workers' interests at heart. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we have a lot to say about this. This is a two-part episode. Mm-hmm. We have more to say next week about, um, you know, how uh, laws affect our work profoundly. And because we are marginalized people, it means that, you know, slight changes in the law have, you know, devastating effects on people's lives when they are already vulnerable. Mm. And we'd love to hear from sex workers about you know, what you think. Um, We definitely don't know what a utopia of decriminalization would look like. Um, We've seen it function 
imperfectly in New South Wales, um, personally. However, we would love to hear from you like on Twitter about what you think, about what we've said. Um, you can reach us. My Twitter handle is at Zuzu Gabrielli. So it's at Z-U-Z-U-G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-I. I'm at Cleo Constantine. So that's at C-L-E-O-C-O-N-S-T-A-N-T-I-N-E. And I am still shadow banned. So you have to type that in precisely. <sighs> anyway, we're going to talk about this more next week. Um, and we're going to have uh, an interview by a member of SWAP in New South Wales, which both of us um, you know, found profoundly interesting. So tune in next week and we'll be back with more dishing about decrim. <laughs> dishing about decrim. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Business or Pleasure, edited by Christo Pekarainen, theme music composed by James Trottier, and executive produced by Susie Kalluck for Zinga Network, S-I-N-G-E Network.com.